0: Okay, so today's verse is Luke 19. Uh, It's going to be verse 41 through 46. So I'll give you a little bit of time to turn there. I'm going to read through uh, from the NIV version. So Luke 19, verse 41 through 46. It'll also be on the screen there as well. Luke 19, 41 through 46. As he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers.
1: All right. Good morning, church. Good morning. I just send you greetings from my family. It's been, it feels like a month since we've been able to come together and worship together because we seem to pick up, we're like a peach tree dish. Is that what those was called? Right. We seem to pick up any sickness. So we would be a great case study for anybody who's interested in virology or anything like that but it's been hard and we're missing a number of our family today because of sickness as well. And I just want to remind that as a family, like man, sickness can be so isolating. Um, Surgeries can be so isolating and painful. So glad to have you back Katie with us and to not forget i just think that the enemy loves to to redirect our focus on ourselves and forget that there's just so many of us who are suffering and struggling and and just really call you to to pick up the phone and reach out because a lot of times we can be so tired and so struggling that we don't even have the energy to reach out or we don't want to be a burden so would you just preemptively reach out to to pete or others who are are struggling right now um Eden's just always sick. She's just constantly sick. So she's home with Joanna and the other kids, and I think Elijah's somewhere in the back. Um, So... That's just to say that it's good to be together, and we're kind of in this in-between stage where we're, as the song said, we're sojourners. We're waiting for our homecoming. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and make all things new, and until then, there's, this world is full of trouble and loss, and it's so good to have a family to suffer together, to weather the storms together, to be in the trenches together for the greatest cause on the earth. So happy to be with you guys. Um, I want to start off with a question that is... One of the most important questions you can consider is that what do you think Jesus feels towards you when you sin? What's his heart like? And if you have a picture of his face, what's his face like towards you? Disgusted, exasperated. What what is he like towards us when we sin? And this is such an important question because however you feel God is like towards you, will deeply influence your prayer life, the way you relate with them. And so no matter how many prayer books you read or sermons you do on prayer, if you, you fundamentally believe that Jesus is constantly sighing at you and exasperated by you, then you're probably going to avoid him. You may avoid him with even good works because that's a way for you can avoid him. That's, that's a whole nother sermon. But, but this getting to the heart of how you perceive Christ's heart towards you is to the utmost importance. Now take it a, a step further. How does he feel towards us when we've blown it and now we're tasting the consequences of our sin? I, it's not hard for me to think about when I was a younger, younger, I know I'm young, but younger than me, when I was pursuing all kinds of toxic rela- romantic relationships. And my leaders warned me, some of my friends warned me, the Holy Spirit warned me, good wisdom warned me, and yet I put my head down and just went forward with it because I wanted what I wanted. I hardened my heart, and the fruit of that was deep pain and broken relationships. Anybody know what that's like? Anybody? Okay, two people have been in a bad relationship when you shouldn't have been, all right. <laughs> the rest of you guys are really wise, and yeah. But, all, but many of us know what that's like. Now, in the midst of my pain and suffering and all my crying tears on my bed and pillow, okay? All right, you, that's, that, that, that truly happened. What is Jesus feeling towards me in that moment? Is he like, this is what we'll get. This is what, this is what happens, Sam, when you don't listen to me. This is what you get. Suits you right. You rejected me. You rejected my counsel, my leadership. This is what you get. I told you this happened, you dummy. Is that what Jesus is like? I don't know, that's pretty, pretty brash the way I'm pointing it, but I I really do believe that a lot of Christians subtly, maybe behind the scenes, feel like that's how God feels towards you when you screw up. And then when you're going under his discipline, you're like, oh, God is just getting a lot of joy out of my suffering. The passage today helps us get into the heart of Christ. What does he feel towards sinners? And not just sinners, but sinners who are outright rejecting him how does he feel towards these people? How does he feel towards people who are about to experience unbelievable punishment? And so what we see in this passage is Christ's heart and also his commitment towards justice, towards doing what is right. Now, I want to bring us back into the context. Last week, Pastor Ross preached on the, the triumphal entry of Jesus. And, and the word triumphal is a little funny that we use that word because it's a, it's a mixed complicated situation, right? Because Jesus is coming towards Jerusalem. The whole book of, the, of Luke is, Gospel of Luke is moving towards him coming to Jerusalem. The rightful king is coming home and yet he's coming like a king but not like a king. Coming like a king because some of his disciples are laying down palm branches and people are saying, you know, um, uh, what are they saying? Again, Hosanna! Yeah, 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 Hosanna! Hosanna! And not like a king because the re- religious leaders who should be at the very front welcoming him in, oh, our rightful king are actually sh- shushing the people. Hey, what are you doing? You don't praise him like that. It's a complicated situation where you have some people praising him and other people confused and other people saying, do not praise him. He's not God. You can't do that. But what most of us don't realize, because probably a lot of our if you grew up in the church, you watch Jesus movies. We have a, a deeply influenced picture of Jesus and how he is by film. And you see Jesus kind of just like smiling, looking around like, thank you, thank you for praising me, right? But actually, if you look at Luke chapter 19, verse 41 on the screen, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and as he sees it, he's weeping. See that? Jesus is approaching the city on this donkey, humble, meek, and mild, weeping. And this word weep is not, it is like the word weep in Greek. (laughs) It's it's the word you would use for lament or mourning deep loss So don't so don't imagine like this tough guy Jesus who has maybe a tear kind of escaped down he quickly wipes it away and people are like are you crying you're like no, I'm not crying I'm good. You know, I'm good We're talking ugly tears Jesus is ugly crying over Jerusalem He's weeping as if he's lost his own children. He's he's weeping. His heart is torn to shreds. If any of you guys know what that's like, have you ever had such a loss that even the most self-conscious of you do not care what you're looking like? The, the mascaras running down, the, the nose is just running, and, and it doesn't matter because your grief is so deep, the heart, the pain is so deep that it doesn't matter what anyone thinks of you at that moment. Some of you guys know what that's like. That's how Jesus is feeling. Full stop, Jesus wept. And that should move us deeply. That should move us that the God man feels. These are the kind of emotions that Jesus feels for Jerusalem, and I would dare say these these are the kind of feelings that he has towards the Twin Cities. And whatever the world portrays God as, or however you may imagine him, you cannot picture him as unfeeling. The scripture will not let you if you actually study it. You cannot imagine Jesus as his unfeeling God. He's a God that cries, cries for the brokenheartedness of of the sin of his people and the judgment that's coming. And we see in this context that Jesus is actually weeping over their lack of faith, their sin, and the resulting judgment that's going to come in a few decades. But even in the judgment that's coming, there's tears. He's not crying over his own self-pity. He's not crying, oh, they rejected me, Father. He's crying for their sake. This is the kind of heart Jesus has. They are rejecting him, and yet his heart is full of compassion and tenderness towards them. This is the heart of God that we even see in the Old Testament. We often make this divorce that, oh, the Old Testament God is wrathful, and then the New Testament Jesus is gentle and sweet. They're one in the same. Look at Ezekiel 33, 11. It's one of the most important passages I would say in the heart of God regarding judgment. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? But notice he's not saying he won't judge them. He won't punish them. He still will. So simultaneously, you have to know that whenever you imagine God judging anyone, know that one, he is 100% just and good to judge and he will. He's inflexible with his judgment. And yet, number two, he does it with sorrow. And what would the Christian witness be like in America if more Christians had that heart? You see people condemning people with a, a smug, self-righteous heart. But what would the witness be like in America if, if every time we said something so hard that the Bible calls us to say, we did it with tears? <clears throat> Do you look at the next verse with me? Luke chapter 19, verse 42. Jesus said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. We're going to come back to this verse later on, but just briefly, on this day, is referring to Jesus' visit to Jerusalem right then. They are blind. Even his own disciples are blind by him, which is evidenced by their dumb questions that they often ask. They don't get what the Messiah needs to do and will do. They're partially blind to him. And eventually that blindness will only be revealed selectively to the few who seek him after his resurrection. But now Jesus is going to show a very gruesome, vivid picture of what will happen to Jerusalem. Because he's the God-man, he has given sight to a prophetic vision of what will happen soon. And so he says this, this very, very specific words that we see later on by the historian Josephus come to, come, comes to pass. Verse 43. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. So this is siege warfare. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So about 40 years later, these words came true. In AD 66, the Jews revolted against Roman control. And then three years later, Titus, son of Emperor Vespasian, was sent to crush the rebellion. 600,000 Jews died in Titus' onslaught. The scene is a gruesome and vivid picture of what will happen to Jerusalem at the end. And almost five months of holding the wall, holding the line, the Romans finally break through the walls of Jerusalem. And they come in and they do what most armies do when they've been sieging you for months. Away from home, ticked off by how pesky you are and how long it took, they unleash their full wrath and their exasperation upon these people, even to the point where they don't even care about the, the life of a little child, and they 're taking little babies and just throwing them on the ground. This is horrible. The people are half starved, and in other sieges that we 've seen throughout history, they 're eating their own chi- children. They're eating their own urine and feces to stay alive. I mean, this, this, is, this is not a pretty sight. And it accumulates to the very end where they burn the temple to the ground. Why does all this happen? According to the text, what does Jesus say? He says this at the end of verse 44, because you do not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You do not recognize the time of God's coming to you. No, he doesn't say you did not recognize my coming to you. He says God's coming to you, which is a clear reminder that a rejection of Jesus is a rejection of God. This is God that they're rejecting. You reject the son, you reject the father. So the rightful king has come and they will reject him. And they not only reject him as rightful king, they go to the most insane step. They treat him like a criminal and put him on a cross. And what the irony is, is that what do they say right at at Pilate's judgment? What do the Pharisees and the people cry out? We have no king but Caesar. Do you guys remember that? And yet the irony is that Caesar himself will come and destroy them in just a few decades. And yet they're crying out that he's their king. (laughs) They want so badly for Jesus not to be their king, that they're willing to, to even say Caesar's their king. And Caesar's going to be the one destroying them. But consider, why do the Romans care anything about Israel, about Israel receiving Jesus as God or not? Why do they care? Because this text said that it's because they rejected Jesus, they did not recognize the time of his coming, that the Romans will do all this crazy stuff. Why do the Romans care? Why would they do that? Why would they be the instrument of God's judgment? Well, the answer to that question is they don't care. They don't care about Israel. They don't care about Israel's religion. They just want them to pay taxes and be good, good servants of the empire. So how does this make sense? God uses them to judge Israel, and yet they don't give a rip about Israel and what God is trying to do. Let me take an important sidebar to talk about something in this text that I find so confusing for many Christians, and for me, it took it was a lot of tears, a lot of study for me to reckon with these realities. And that's God's sovereignty and man's free choices. Okay? Come with me for, for a minute to this little sidebar. Throughout Scripture, we see God's judgment is often executed through humans, human agency. So God is judging the city for rejecting God, but he does it with the free choices of Rome. And this is a mystery. If you were to tell a Roman soldier, hey, you know that God is using you and God is actually using you to judge those Jews for their rejection of Jesus as Messiah? What would the Romans say? What? No, he's not. We're wrecking them and destroying them, rape, pillaging and and destroying them because we want to, because we hate them. We don't like the Jews. And so what we see here is that God is meaning something, sending them for something, and then simultaneously the Romans are meaning and doing something that they want. Let me, let me share Isaiah chapter 10. This is a, a passage that kind of brings us together so that you know that I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere and trying to impose upon this text something that I was taught, but something that took years of careful study as I kept reading the Bible over and over again and seeing this pattern. Would you look at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5? It's on the screen, but if you have a Bible, please grab it. So this is another time Isaiah is talking about the Assyrians who are coming to judge Israel. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him, this is God speaking, against a godless nation, Israel. I dispatch him against the people who anger me to seize loot and to snatch and plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But listen to verse 7. This is the key. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy and to put an end to many nations. Do you guys see that? God is sending him. And simultaneously, the desire of the Syrian's heart is actually syncing with God's plan and purposes. So we see throughout Scripture this two truths that are parallel but not perfectly explained how they work together. And I'm not going to do that because I can't. Scripture doesn't do that for you. It holds up two truths on the screen. God is sovereign over every single detail of the whole world throughout history. And yet, man has genuine free choices that fit into God's sovereign plan. Those two truths are throughout the entire Bible. They run parallel and scripture does not perfectly explain how they both work together. But they are. And we get in trouble when we try to philosophically fit them together and figure out how that works together. Or we get in trouble because we pick one and ignore the other. So you got one side, you have people who literally think that we have no real choices. We're like puppets and God is this great, cruel uh, puppeteer. Some people would call them like a a hyper-Calvinist. On the other hand, you got people who so elevate man's free choices and free agency and free will that God is basically just constantly reacting to man. God doesn't actually know the future. He kind of does because he's smart enough and he can kind of plan out all these, all these different alternate timelines of work. And then he's constantly reacting to us, but we can't really trust him with the future because he doesn't know what the future is and he can't control the future. He's not sovereign. Now, those are a lot of words that just came out. <laughs> And, and the pastors are giving me a lot of feedback. They're like, Sam, slow down. Stop talking so much. But you see, this is a tension in scripture, and we get in a lot of trouble as a church and as Christians when we try to highlight one with a diminishment of the other. We have a God who is trustworthy and good and sovereign in control of all of history. We can trust him. And yet all of our choices matter. They matter. They matter. And I know that I just opened up a can for some of you. And if you want to talk more, I'd be happy to talk more with my Bible open and to wrestle through these texts. They're hard. They're hard and they take time. So don't take my word for it. Let's go through the Bible more and more in the future. So back to the text. I I just want to clarify that because I think it's important to understand why Rome would do such a thing and be used as an agent of judgment. Now, let's look at this cleansing of the temple. Jesus cleansing the temple can be very confusing for, for many of us, right? But what we see is that what Jesus is doing is he's foreshadowing the judgment that's going to be put upon the church on the temple and demonstrating this with a live, live, live um, demonstration. But before I get to, to that, let me remind you what the purpose of the temple was. Because this is important. The temple was God's answer to the age-old question of this. How does a holy, good, just God dwell among a sinful people? God wants to be near his people, but his people are sinful. So how does that work? And so God needs a way to mediate his presence among his people. So the temple was there, God's presence would be there, and it was a constant sign upon Israel of his special, unique favor that made them distinct among the nations, that his presence and blessing was among them. And throughout the years, there's a constant sign that God was actually there. There's a glory cloud of God's presence and favor. But then we see a problem that throughout the years, Israel continually give themselves to other lovers. They worship other lovers in the midst and other gods in the midst of the temple. And then the glory cloud of God's presence actually leaves in Ezekiel. And then verse 45 is so beautiful because in walks Jesus into the temple. The presence of God manifested, manifested in a person. The true temple walks in the temple. And when Jesus entered the temple courts, verse 45, he began to drive out all those who were selling. And he says this, It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. In the other gospel accounts, you probably have seen this or if you've seen movies, you see Jesus gets a court of whips and he's literally driving people out of the temple he is flipping tables he he's flipping mad and, it, and it's jarring for us because we have this picture of jesus as just, just like this sweet like meek old man and he is and throughout scripture we see that the people that the world and society was harshest towards he was most gentle towards and those who are self-righteous and they thought they knew everything were leading people straight he was seemingly harsh and direct towards him and so then the question is, they must be doing something really bad for Jesus to have this kind of response to them, right? So the question is, what are the people doing in the court that are, that's making Jesus respond with such craziness? And I'll say this, fundamentally, they're m- grossly misrepresenting the character and heart of God, and they're wronging people. So here are three issues that are coming up on the screen if you're taking notes. There's greedy merchants and priests. There's extra barriers on the Gentiles that they're placing. And then there's a false hope in the temple they're placing their hearts on. When Jesus says, my house will be a house of prayer, he quotes both Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. If you're taking notes. He's taking two passages from two different contexts and cramming them together. And for us to understand what Jesus is saying and what he's Implying by these statements, we have to go back into those original contexts and understand what was going on in Isaiah's day and Jeremiah's day. Does it make sense? So we're going to take a a minute there. But what we see in the beginning of Jeremiah 7 is that Jeremiah actually walks into the courts and declares a prophetic judgment upon the people. And so Jesus is literally falling in his footsteps and doing the same thing. Standing in the same court, proclaiming a prophetic judgment. And if you have ears to hear and you know your scriptures you're saying, "Whoa, Jesus is pulling a Jeremiah right now." So what's the first thing that Jesus has issues with? I'm going to highlight greedy merchants and priests. Now, the temple was a place where you would sacrifice to Yahweh, but if you lived in Beersheba or far, far away in Dan, It would be very impractical and challenging for you to bring all the necessary livestock and sacrifices all those many miles, treacherous miles, right? That makes sense. If you ever try to lead cattle by yourself, that's hard, let alone for miles and miles. And so what they would do is they would create a system where as you enter Jerusalem, you could come with the bare necessities and pay local merchants and local businessmen to get the necessary sacrifices you would need seems like a good service, right? But, it was, but what happened is increasingly these people start to extort the foreigners. They needed the sacrifice. They knew they needed the sacrifice and they would abuse them with exorbitant prices that they had to pay. It's kind of like when you go to a Twins game or a Vikings game and you start getting really thirsty and you buy a bottle of water or you think about buying a bottle of water and you know that that $4 bottle of water is not worth $4. And they know that too. And they know you have nowhere to go because there's two water fountains for like 40,000 people. And so you're stuck. And so you have to pay it. And while you pay, you're like, I could buy 50 bottles of water for $4, right? It's kind of like that. These people have traveled a long way. They don't have resources and they need a sacrifice. And these people know that and they're taking advantage of them. And then the question would ask is, how could they get away with such heinous, terrible treatment of people? Well, the religious people, the religious leaders would have to be okay with it. They knew. It wasn't some secret. And so my guess is, Jesus saying this is a den of robbers, I'm guessing not only the merchants and those who were selling, but the priests and the religious leaders were getting a little cut of it too. And I bet that they weren't in their inner chambers at their house, like, we're just wronging these people. They probably compromised in their head and rationalized, oh, we are creating a necessary service for the glory of God. It's okay. God's man's got to eat. God needs to bless us because we are providing a necessary service for them to worship God. And so Jesus is not okay with this. They are giving a very inaccurate picture of God. They're abusing the people. And you actually see this is pulled from Jeremiah's context on the screen. Jeremiah 7, 5 through 6. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans and widows. Only if you stop your murdering. And only if you stop harming yourself by worshiping idols. And so in Jeremiah's day, they were doing similar actions. They were exploiting foreigners, which leads to our next issue. Extra barriers for Gentiles. See, to understand what's going on, we have to understand what's what. Israel's mission was. Israel's mission was not to hoard the goodness of God, the, the good news of his word, but to actually be a conduit of grace towards the nations, even the Old Testament. They were supposed to be priests of the world. And so as the world looks at the way Israel lived and the way they loved and cared for the foreigner and the, the poor and the way they executed justice, the world is supposed to look in, in that and say, wow, God is real. Wow, I want that God. Your society is so kind and just and right and equitable. I want to be part of that. But instead of doing that, they gave the world a very inaccurate view of God. And so what we see at this time, Josephus, jo- Josephus hmm, help me, say it with me, Josephus, thank you. Okay, he talked about, the historian talked about four different courts that they had at the, se- the second temple. They had one court that was very close to the Holy of Holies where only priests could be. One more court that would be for only ritually, pure, ceremonially, went through the process, Jewish men. Then the third court, further away from the Holy Holies, was another court with all Jews, women included. And then the fourth court, furthest away from the Holy Holies, was the court of the, anyone know the name? Gentiles. Now where do you think they were selling all the livestock in? The court of the Gentiles. So in a place that was supposed to have give the Gentiles who wanted Yahweh access to him, access to pray, even though I'll be far away, they filled it with like a pigsty. They filled it with commerce. They filled it with bartering. They filled it with extorting, uh, not exhorting. What's the word? Extortion. It was like trying to pray at a third world supermarket. If you've ever been to one of those, okay? It's hard. And so, what they're doing is giving a very confusing, inaccurate picture to the Gentiles who want Yahweh about what God is like and that He wants a real relationship with them. Look at verse 3 in Isaiah 56. Again, pulling from the original context, Isaiah fifty-six, three on the screen, don't let the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, see, they're committing themselves to the Lord, say, the Lord will never let me be part of his people. See, these, these foreigners were getting confused at that time in Isaiah's day. They're like, does he want me or not? Can I have him or not? And the answer is, yes, you can, but the Jews were creating unnecessary barriers to make it confusing for them. The fear for those who weren't Jews is that they wanted God and they feared that God would forsake them. And yet, look at this beautiful promise in verse six from the Lord. I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest and hold fast to his covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices. Why? Because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all Jews. No, all nations. From the very beginning, this was supposed to be for all peoples. But they created this very, very complicated system that made it very hard for non-Jews to come to know Yahweh. Do you see that this was always in God's heart, even in the Old Testament? God is not ethnocentric. He uses specific peoples to bless all peoples. And the problem is, is those specific peoples often hoard the goodness of God and keep it and give the world a terrible picture. The temple was supposed to be a place where people far from God could come and be close to him, and yet the merchants turned it to a place where they profited off of people's spiritual needs. Something Pastor Ross wrote to me. Now, I don't believe we do something like that specifically at our church or churches. Like, we don't have cows in here and crazy things like that. But, but made me think about this context because I want to always apply it back to our home context. And here's a question Are there any personal or cultural or traditions that we are holding on to that are not necessarily biblical? But we hold on to them because they're important to us, they're helpful for us, we love them, we grew up with them, or whatnot, that are creating unnecessary, unnecessary barriers for those who are far from God. I'm going I'm to say that again, hopefully, hopefully you can think about that. Are there any personal or cultural or traditions that we are holding on to that aren't necessarily biblical? It's not like God says it. We just like it. that are unnecessarily creating extra barriers from those who are far from God, to come near. Within our community, within our gatherings, I pray the Holy Spirit would help apply that to all of us because I think it's going to be different for different people. And one of the keys for us to be able to love Lebanon Lutheran well and for them to be able to love us well is to constantly check our hearts to say, is what I'm doing, what I'm feeling, my instincts, my preferences, are they biblical preferences or are they personal preferences? that I'm unwilling to lay down because I love myself more than I love my neighbor. And I love myself and my traditions more than I love the kingdom of God. The third issue was a false hope in the temple. Let's look back at Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7 verse 4. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, The temple of the Lord is here! The temple of the Lord is here! The Lord's temple. See, for many Jews, the fact that the temple was in their midst was a constant security blanket for them. A sense that God was pleased with them and they were right with God. But... Because they had this false hope in the temple, they let themselves wild and go free in all these other areas of integrity. Look at verse eight with me. Don't be fooled into thinking that you'll never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incest to Baal and those other new gods of yours? And then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we are safe, only to go right back to all those evils again. Don't yourselves, you yourselves admit that this temple, which bears my name, has become a den of thieves. Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. So what was going on is the average Jew could be very religious. They went through confirmation. They went through all the different rituals. And they would go and be a good Jews on Shabbat. But simultaneously, they were worshiping other gods. They were stealing. They were committing adultery. They were murdering, doing all this kind of stuff. And they thought to themselves, it's okay. We got the temple. We got the temple of the Lord. And and even when they start, their consciences started to bear witness against them, other prophets would say, you guys are in danger of judgment. You would have other false prophets stay up and say, look, listen, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. We're good. We're good. We're good. God's favor is here because we have the temple of the Lord. Listen, if the Jews were not walking in full obedience to God, then they were not safe from judgment. You see that word he said in verse 10? We are safe only to go back to those evils again. And listen, I see this happening in churches my whole life in America. We have many who grew up in church, were baptized maybe as an infant or baptized young, went to youth group, went to church camp, confirmation and so forth. And you're a good Christian. You're better than your unbelieving friends. You go to church. Maybe you give some tithes. Maybe you do different kind of good things in church. But there are areas of your life that you refuse to give to Jesus. You think, I know this is not okay, but I am good because I got baptized. Or my parents are good Christians. Or I go to church. See, we have our own version of chanting the temple of the Lord. We, we, we make negotiations of our term of surrender to Jesus and say, God, as long as I give you these things, give me a pass on these things. And we think that we're okay because we have the temple of the Lord. We're safe. I go to church. I'm a member at APC or whatnot. Listen, if God does not have your whole heart he does not have every bit of your heart if none of it if it's if there's any part that you're negotiating you, you, you hear what I said terms of surrender right oh well you could have this but not this if any of that is the case for you any of that the case for for me and far be it for me as a preacher because many preachers have done that as we found out on the news they say well God I'm preaching the gospel for you I'm saving people for you and I'm doing all these good things I'm sacrificing it's okay if I have some side chicks it's okay if I have a porn addiction or I'm embezzling some money. I'm God's man. I mean, I deserve it, right? This is, this is not an old thing. This is not a new thing. This has been around forever that we rationalize and we think that as long as we throw a little religion, throw a little ritual, that we're good and safe and then we can have huge gaps of compromise in our life. We can commit adultery. We can look at porn. We can be nasty to people. We can be unkind. Well, it's okay because I do these things. And I, and I know I'm going hard at you, but, but I'm going hard at myself. Because it's so easy for us to do this to ourselves. It's so easy to compromise and rationalize. And let me just tell you, you are not safe if that is your pattern. I'm not saying if you've ever done that, because we all do that at different times. But if that's your pattern, is constantly negotiating with God, telling him what he can or cannot have, you're not safe. But look at the heart of Jesus in the midst of your impending judgment Verse 42, back in Luke 19, look at his heart. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Do you hear him? If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace. You see the heart of our Savior here, he wants him to have peace. He's not this vindictive, harsh, unfeeling God. He's weeping as he's saying this. The insanity of the good news of the gospel is that the the king who was spurned and rejected by his people dies in the place of those who spurned and rejected him. He's not crying for himself, remember? He's crying for them. Who is like this king? Who is this merciful? Imagine if a whole community rejected you and you're weeping, not for your own self-pity, but you're weeping for them. And then you come back and you die for them, for their punishment. Their judgment. So, believers, for those of us who are continually holding on to Jesus, not perfectly, but truly, consistently, rejecting our sin, putting our hope and allegiance in Him, we are safe. And the picture I had as I was prepping the sermon is is we're on the cross, we're, we're about to get just exterminated by the wrath of God, the punishment we deserve, and then Jesus comes and just envelops us, and He just takes it all. He's shaken. He's shaken as he's taking all the wrath. He's taking all the punishment we deserve and we're safe and we're clean. That's, that's what Jesus says for us. And not only does he take our punishment, he forgives us our debt as if we've never done it before. He cleanses us to be pure. He gives us a new heart, new desires. He gives us his Holy Spirit to continually transform us and become more like Jesus. This is the good news. This is, this is the God we serve. Beloved, I want to make clear this does not mean you'll, you're, you're perfect, you never sin. I do, we do. But it's that your heart is continually in a posture of saying, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Everything's on the table. Unforgiveness, it's so hard, Lord, to forgive. I'll give it to you. Right? That addiction, I'll give it to you. That bitterness, I'll give it to you. I don't want to, but i give it to you. Everything is on the table, and you're saying, This and nothing else do I, in my holding bag, it's all yours. That's the, that's the heart of a true Christian. The heart of an unbeliever or a, or a, or a Christian and who, who's faking it, non-Christian, is those who say these and only these. And if that's you, you're not sure you have, right, you're, you have peace with God, you're holding back on God, you're not safe, as I said. And God will judge you, he will, but he'll do it with a broken heart. And I don't want that judgment for you, I don't. I don't, it keeps me up. It really does keep me up when I see people walk into judgment and continue to harden their heart. If you want that peace with God, that peace with God is available through Jesus Christ. And if if you're not sure you have that, please come talk to me. Please grab another believer who does walk with God. Mercy is available for you to come to him. I promise that. And let me just end with this church. This This was a heavy word. I hope that you see that I was trying to be faithful with what the word said and not add to it. And I just want us to marvel at the reality of a God who weeps. A God who is so powerful and yet is so humble and feels deeply and he weeps over our sin. He weeps over the judgment that is due those who reject him. Let's marvel at the God who desires and longs for people to have peace even though they reject his peace. This is a good God we have. And let's worship and pray. And um, yeah, would you pray with me? Father, this is amazing, but this is weighty, that we have a God like you, a Savior like you. We want to be like you, Jesus. We want to be those who can say hard things with tears. We want to know your heart. Lord, if there are anybody here right now any believers who know you, but they they have such a distorted view of your heart towards them. They just feel judgment radiating from you. They feel shame coming from you. Would you redeem their view of you, renew their mind, bring them, envelop them into your heart, your tender heart, and let that transforming grace and love transform our lives and and abolish the sin in our hearts that reign. Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, they're faking it. They're the Lord of their life, and they're just giving you ritual homage and saying the temple of the Lord, like those in Jeremiah's day. If that's true of anyone here, may they just feel the weight of that impending judgment and feel the greater weight of your grace available for them. Let them not hold on one more day. Father, be merciful to us. Thank you, Jesus, for being such a Savior. We love you. Teach us how to apply these truths by your Holy Spirit this week. We love you, Lord. And Father, if there's anything that I said that was not true, that did not represent your word and your heart accurately, would you correct me and let no one hear it? But everything that is true and good and pure and right and from the throne of God, from your heart, let it deeply transform us. And let's, Let us take heed of those words. You can have all of it. You can have all of our hearts, Lord, we give to you. We give you all of our hearts, Lord, nothing, no holding back, no terms of negotiation. All of our hearts are yours, Lord. Be Lord of everything. Thank you for being such a trustworthy, loving Savior, such a good King, so trustworthy, so tender, so worthy to follow. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.